Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph will bring a message entitled, Raising Your Shield of Faith, will be in Ephesians chapter 6. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. The message today is a little bit different. Our, our church has been doing a, a series of teaching about the struggles that we go through in life and the difficulties that we face and how to overcome them. And the scripture very clearly says that the things that we face, even the, the, the antagonisms of other people, are not something that's caused by other people, but it's caused by the fact that there, we live in a spiritual universe and, and that it's a broken universe, that the angel that was the angel above all of creation under God rebelled against the Father and pulled a third of the angels of heaven along with him. And the Bible uses words like demon for them. A fallen angel is, is, a, is a picture that you need to get in your mind and not one of those fellows with wings sprouted out of his back. But as, as you look in the, in the scripture, a person saw an angel. A person looked like a very large person who kind of was dressed in white and sometimes their clothes glowed. The other side, the dark side, a seducing spirit, a spirit that wants to, to bring destruction into your life. Jesus said that he came to give us life and to give us a prosperous life but that the enemy comes to destroy us and to, to take us down. And so we're thinking about who, who's, who's coming at us with thoughts of depression or thoughts of worthlessness or fears and anxieties that are beyond reason. Who's causing someone to suddenly become antagonized toward you and, 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 and you, there's no real justification for it and you don't know anything you can do to put the thing back together. As we've been in this study, we, we've, it, it's kind of an interesting little crossroads in my life. We come to a place where the next message in the study talks about our shield of faith and holding up our shield of faith. And there's a book that I read about 18 months ago, and, and, and we actually went out and air freighted a whole bunch of them in here this week, so I'm not trying to make money here. We spent more money getting these here than it cost to sell them to your retail, but we wanted them available. It's called Restoring Your Shield of Faith, and, and actually, just the way that it all worked out, I, I never do this, but I did it this time. I pulled a message right out of the first chapter of this book, because it fits so well with where we've been going in the teaching stream and what the Lord has done for us. Understanding that Jesus himself really is our shield of faith. And, and having said that to you, I, I just want to take you into this with a picture. And uh, you see a, a, a band of ugly men wearing shields over their arms that look a little different than anything that you have seen. And, and this is really probably a more accurate picture of, of what a, a Roman soldier would look like 2,000 years ago than anything that we've seen in the movies that get shown every year at Easter where they got this little round shield. And the word that they have for shield comes from the, the word for door. And so a shield was a door-like device that was, it was made of, of three to seven layers of cowhide that had been tanned that were stretched over a lightweight hardwood frame so you could manipulate the thing. Before you'd go into battle, you would wet it down and you would carry this thing with you as, as a, a form of protection and, in a sense, as a form of a, an aggressive weapon. And we'll get into that this way. I want you to picture yourself 
as a soldier in an ancient Roman army. And you know that you're a part of an outfit that has done well. Everywhere you've gone, uh, you've succeeded. There are times you've been beaten back, but you've always come through, and victory has always, always, always been there. But you're new to this, and you've been trained, and, and you've been schooled in the use of your weaponry. You've been, you've been hardened. You've been physically conditioned. But you're encamped on a rise and above a small valley, and in that valley you see a stream and some trees, and on the other side of the rise, the hill rises up again and on the other side of the valley. And, and you're gathered there with several thousand of your own type, your own people, and, and you've been camped there for several days, and, and, and you can see just out in the distance this, this massive, chaotic band of barbarian people. And they have their faces all painted, their, their hair is shaved in strange ways. They have tattoos on themselves. They have mutilated their bodies in ways of sacrificing themselves to their gods. There's much disorder in their ranks. They're, 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 they're carping and they're fighting amongst themselves. They're yelling and they're hollering and for days they've been taunting you and making wild gestures and holding up their weapons. And somehow as you wake up this morning, you sense this is it. This will be the day. We're going to engage these people. Battle will be done today. And you have a question that's in the back of your mind. It's a question you really don't want to face, but it's there anyway. And it's a question of, will I survive this day? I'm alive to greet the sunrise. Will I be alive and around when the sun sets at the close of the day? You eat a breakfast and you can hardly keep it down. There's so much butterflies in your stomach. Your hands are sweaty. You feel your, your heart at the base of your throat. You're just not really sure of yourself. Your commander walks through and does his best to calm you down. And, and, and then you and those around you gather your weapons up. And, and you, you are an ordered group. And there's discipline among you. And you... Put yourself into, into to rank and file. You, you begin to assemble yourself as a, as a vast, organized army, much like the way we're seated in this room, in columns. And those at the front take their shield that looks like a door, and they march off closed ranks. And as you march, you, you, you march in lockstep. You, you're maybe a hundred people deep in the rows. If one falls, another will step forward to take his place. And you begin this steady, slow march off to battle. And you begin pounding your swords against your shields. And it makes a roar that just is designed to put terror into the heart of the enemy. But as you gaze off into the distance, you see the enemy and he doesn't look terrified at all. In fact, it seems that he's more enraged by the order that you keep and, and by the sound of your marching. And, and, the, and the enemy begins to, to scream and to holler and to, to just prance around. And there are thousands of them. And, and suddenly, like a flood, they rush upon you. But as you engage battle with these people, the first thing that happens is someone yells, shields up. And everybody holds their shield up and locks them together, and it's like an impenetrable wall. And you find that battle axes and swords and spears are absolutely useless against the protection that you have. And this 
is truly the device that caused Rome to conquer the world, their shield. And as the first wave of the enemy begin to lose heart and, and, and confusion is sown among them and others are pressing forward on them, somebody gives a command and everybody just spreads ranks just a little and, and you take your, your short broadsword, maybe two and a half feet long, it's made so it's got a cutting surface on both sides and you begin to hack and to, and to probe and to stab and you start to mutilate the enemy. And then there comes fear and confusion and the enemy begins to, to, to rout and to, to run and, and now the, the order comes and you begin to march forward again into their ranks and, 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 and cutting and carving as you go. But suddenly you notice that there's a trap that's set for you and on, on both sides up on the hill there are bands of archers and they have arrows that they have dipped into to, to coal tar and to what, what would today be seen as crude oil. And they dip it in and they, they put it over a fire and now there are flaming arrows and they're raining those arrows down upon you. And panic seizes your heart. And the man behind you and the man next to him and the man next to him and the man behind them and the man behind them pull their shields up over the top of you and you begin to march forward and the term that your, your officers have used is the tortoise march. You march as a turtle in its shell and you're absolutely protected from the flaming arrows that are thrown against you. And victory is yours that day. This is the picture that the scripture has in mind when the Apostle Paul writes these words that you have on this little paper in front of you where it says life is a struggle. It says in every battle you will need faith as your shield, literally as your door shield, to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you by Satan. The King James Version of the Bible, the old Shakespearean English says, above all, take up the shield of faith, lift it up, raise it, so you'll be able to put out the fiery darts, the fiery arrows of the wicked one. Whether it's temptation, whether it's fear, whether it's depression, whether it's somebody's evil action against us, ultimately, there's an enemy behind it all that would like to destroy you. And the battleground is your mind. The place we win or we lose is in our mind. There's a scripture in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, that says, Above all, protect your heart, for in it is the wellspring of life. Protect your heart. The Bible uses the word soul in another place. Dif differentiates it from your spirit. It's, it's, it's that part of you that's you. It's that place of the seat of your emotions, of your feelings, of your thoughts. We use the word mind, but that somehow escapes the whole picture. Protect your heart, because in it is the wellspring of life. You know, when you lose heart, you come to a place where you sometimes lose physical strength. You wake up in the morning and the world is a great place and then some bad news comes in the middle of the day and, and, and you just, you've lost all strength. You've lost energy. You just can't hardly put a foot in front of the other. Protect your heart. It's the wellspring of life and in this business of the shield of faith, raise up your shield of faith because it's that that will quench the fiery arrows, the flaming arrows that are thrown at you by the wicked one. Protect your heart above all things. Well, how do we do this? I mean, with our faith. 
they, they talk so much about faith and how faith will sustain you, but it's, it's faith in what? You know, faith by itself is, is really a non-entity. You know, my faith holds me up. Well, what, what is your faith all about? You, your faith has to have an object to it. You know, the other night I, I went to dinner with a, a, a friend and it was Friday evening and it was pouring rain if you were in Kaneohe. I mean, it was raining buckets full. And I, I got just the umbrella worked getting in and out of or getting around outside of my car, but getting in the car and folding the umbrella, the whole inside of my car got wet, you know. And I had to preach Friday night. I was wet on this side all the way. But as we were there and we had dinner, we, we go walking out to the parking lot and, and I see this young woman come out in the rain without an umbrella, without any kind of protection. And it's just, she's just getting bombed by the rain. And she's coming after my friend going, sir, sir, sir. And I thought, what on earth? And, and then I looked around and, and, and what had happened is he had forgotten to sign the credit card slip. And I thought, well, he's an attorney. <laughs> Hi, Frank. <laughs> it wasn't him. It was another one. Faith in a credit card slip is only good if somebody has signed the credit card slip. You're placing faith in the person that they're good to keep their word. And Jesus becomes a shield of faith to us if we can have faith in Jesus. And this brings us to Easter and what it's all about. You know, I remember that first Easter when I was preaching. You know, I, I, I grew up in church. I accepted the Lord as a, as a small boy, and, and uh, it, it all kind of came natural. It all worked well. I saw Christianity transform my parents' lives. I saw people who were bickering and fighting to the point that sometimes my sister and I would be fearful of which parent will we have to live with in the future, and which parent will we have to not live with. And then they became Christians, and I, I watched this change. My, my parents were were, were good people. But I saw my uncles and my dad hanging out together when I was a little boy, and I, 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 I'm aware of how much alcohol they consumed. I'm aware of what went on in their relationships and the kind of jokes that they told. And I, I saw my dad absolutely transformed before my eyes. And I saw the path that my uncles continued on and where it took them, and I saw the path that my father picked up, and I saw where it took us as a family. And God's grace was pouring out in our family. And so all by itself, but the, the experience of my family gives me faith in Jesus Christ, that this is the Son of God who rose from the dead. And when the scripture says that the power that God used to bring his Son from the dead is the same power that's alive and working in you, I have faith in that statement. And my faith is not in my faith. My faith is in God. But I remember that first Easter when I was 26 years old and I had to stand up on Easter Sunday and preach an Easter Sunday message. And, 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 and as I was preparing for that message, all of a sudden it hit me full on that either the resurrection occurred or it did not occur. And Christianity rises and falls on that one single event. If you take the resurrection away, all the rest of it is, is nonsensical or it's idiotic. You know, the, the, the concept that Jesus could be a good teacher and a wise man and lie to people and say that he was going to die and resurrect from the dead just doesn't wash. How can you be a liar and then be a, 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 a man full of character and, and a great prophet and a leader and all that? 
Or he was an idiot, a lunatic, that thought he was going to raise from the dead, and he didn't do that, and who would fall at his feet and worship him? There either has to be absolute, total credibility, or there's no credibility at all. Does that make sense to you? And when I began to deal with that, I, I, I had to go back and, and look over my own faith and how much I had just taken for granted because it was stuff that had been told to me by people who I trusted. And, and, and there had to be a little bit of, in, in my mind, in the way that my mind works, a little bit of, of research here. You know, I love to make fun of attorneys. But if I wasn't a pastor, I think I would have probably ended up becoming an attorney. When I was young, I wanted to be an architect. The older I got, the more I got enthralled with the way those people think. And there has to be reasoning. There has to be something that works. And so I went out and I, I got some of the books that the skeptics write. I thought the best way to understand this thing is, is to look at those people who doubt it the most. And, and I found out that there are basically three arguments against the resurrection. And the, the, the first one is that there, there was no, no resurrection at all. Jesus died. He was buried in a tomb. And that was the end of it. And then his disciples uh, all got together and they hallucinated. And they thought that they saw him alive after he was dead. And that explains the whole story. But what that doesn't explain is why nobody ever produced the body when they begin to go around and say that this was the truth. It doesn't explain the way that they described their experiences with Jesus alive after he was dead. And by the way, we're talking about the eyewitnesses here. And folks, all we have is eyewitnesses. The reason that you know that a man named George Washington lived and was the first president of the United States and, and, and won that, that guerrilla war against the British Army is because the eyewitnesses have written down their statements about it. Those of you that were born after 1963, the only reason that you know that a person named John F. Kennedy ever lived and walked this planet is because of eyewitness accounts of his life. And the eyewitnesses said that we saw Jesus alive after he was dead. And they didn't describe it as we were all in a room someplace having a prayer meeting. And it was dark and there were some candles lit. And somebody, somebody, somehow somebody saw him and then we all saw him. Mass hypnosis. Didn't happen that way. Two people are walking down the road and he comes and he's walking along kind of behind them and starts asking them questions and they're looking at the ground and all of a sudden they look up and they go, it's him. There's a couple of women that are coming to, to mourn and cry and proclaim their grief and they see him there. There's a group of them gathered together in a room and he shows up and he talks with them. There's a group of others that are together and, and one of them is loudly proclaiming, you guys are idiots, I don't believe this, I won't believe in him unless I can put my finger in the hole in his hands. And he shows up, spooks them all out and says, here, put your finger in the hole in my hand. And then he eats with them. Apparitions don't usually eat fish. The second argument is that the disciples stole the body. These people are in fear of their lives. Have you ever watched some tragedy happen? People bleeding all over the place. Uh, worse when it's your friend. You go into shock. And suddenly, two days after the, the death of somebody that they loved, that they had put all their hopes in, and, and their hopes are dashed. And when you read the, the accounts, they, they were angry. They were hurt. They were wounded. 
And they're supposed to have come and, and somehow quietly, privately rolled away a two and a half ton rock from the front of this grave without waking the guard of soldiers that are there who supposedly had fallen asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. And they silently move this rock away and they take the, 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 the body out of the tomb and they hide it someplace and they hide it so well that no one ever, ever finds the body. And then they go out and they proclaim, he's alive, we saw him alive. But when push comes to shove and the authorities say we had enough of this and you're spreading this thing and it's taking over the world and they start killing these people, these people will not recant. And one after another they die for their faith. And again, it's not a Jonestown deal where somebody gets everybody all psyched up and they all decide that they'll commit mass suicide. These people are spread to the ends of the earth. They think the Apostle Thomas went to the southern tip of India. I have a friend that attends the Mar that attended when he lived there the Mar Thomas Church in India. They believe the founder of that congregation, a local church like this, is the Apostle Thomas, Thomas the Doubter. And these people all died, but one of them, and they all died in various and different situations far away from each other. And it just doesn't stack up that it was some kind of a conspiracy to pull the wool over the eyes of the world. And the last theory is that Jesus never really died. That he was beaten badly. You all saw the passion of the Christ and, 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 and you saw what a tragedy that would be. And if you read about it, you saw that twice. That during the filming, the actor was actually hit with a, the whip. At one point, he, it hurt him so bad, he fell to the ground and broke a rib in the process. But Jesus is wounded terribly and and there's the whole thing of the crown of thorns, the beating of the fists. There's even the, the spear in his side and, and, you know, out comes what looks like blood and water. And a physician will say he had already died of heart, congestive heart failure. And it was the serum of the blood separated from the solids. But pushing all of that aside, he was taken into the cool of the tomb. By the way, in 1980, this was the supreme argument against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's taken into the cool of the tomb and the cool air of the tomb revives him. And he comes back and he never died at all. But they thought he did. They didn't understand medicine and they thought he was, he was resurrected and Christianity was, was founded upon this mistake, this medical mistake. But then when you start to think about it, 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 it it's, it's hard to think that a man with, with nails driven through his hands and feet is going to get up, roll away a two and a half ton rock, and get out of a tomb. Harder yet to think that when his followers saw him that nobody would show him any mercy or any compassion. Instead, they would be in awe of him. But it's the hardest to believe that a person who's been badly mutilated, put into the cool air of anything, would revive as soon as somebody has had any kind of trauma, you immediately put blankets upon them and keep them as warm as you can because if their body temperature drops, they'll go into shock and they'll die. And that first Easter in 1972, when I stopped being a youth pastor and stopped being a kid growing up in church and had to face facts and, and deal with, I got to stand here and preach this stuff and I got to face whether it's real or not. I got to figure out, am I going to go back to school and get another career or am I going to continue in the path I'm on? 
I became convinced of my own that Jesus rose from the dead and that I could put my faith and my confidence in him. And so as I speak to you today about Jesus Christ being the shield of faith, I speak to you as a person who has intellectually and emotionally come to a place where I, I believe in what I'm talking about. I've, I've, I've vested my life in this. But I also speak to you as a person who has experienced the grace of God. And the things that I want to talk to you about are, 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 are truths that I've found to be real, not just because I read them in the Bible, but because at times of crisis in my life, and, and, and I started to freak out and I started to lose it, then I got a hold of myself and I began to hold up the shield of faith. And it began to put out the attack of the enemy. It snuffed out the thing that was meant to destroy me. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 